This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. The Clifton Cultural Arts Center finally has a new home of its own, opening in March. Joining me now to talk about the long road to this new location and the inaugural exhibit celebrating black hair culture, our Clifton Cultural Arts Center Executive Director, Leslie Moody. Thanks for being here, Leslie. Hi, thanks, Lucy. And CCAC Artist-in-Residence, Aaron Smith. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you for having me here. Do you have questions or comments about the Clifton Cultural Arts Center? Give us a call at 513-419-7100, or you can email talk at wvxu.org. Leslie, as I mentioned, the Clifton Cultural Arts Center um, its had a long road to get to where it is now. Originally, you opened in a shuttered school building. Tell us about that history briefly. Yeah, so CCAC was founded in 2006, basically when CPS was doing their billion-dollar renovation master plan, and it was determined that the Clifton Elementary School would be one of the schools that would no longer cease to exist as a school, right? So members of the community um, you know, who were on the, the committee talking about what would happen um, really decided to, you know, form a, a cultural arts center, community arts center, and turn the building that was 100 years old at the time, um, had been, you know, uh, needed some TLC, um, but to turn that into something positive and exciting for the neighborhood. So we opened our doors in 2008 as the community arts center. And then you operated there for, gosh, close to a decade, right? Correct. Yeah, we were there um, until 2017 is when we found out that Cincinnati Public was going to reopen a neighborhood school in that building. And so we actually moved out in late 2018. Mm-hmm. And the Arts Center, you all wanted to stay in the school, but ultimately you had to leave. How have you been operating ever since? Yeah, so we um, we thought we'd just be out for maybe a year or two uh, while we looked to secure a new home. And and honestly, Lucy, we went through quite a bit of community and, and soul searching internally, right? Um, we certainly considered maybe we don't continue. You know, maybe this is it. Um, but we had a lot of support. We'd had 40,000 people taking classes or attending a program or an exhibit or an event every year for about three years before we were, um, you know, asked to vacate. And so we knew we had an audience base. We had some money that we were going to get back from the public school district because we had put in so much to the building itself. And so we, you know, we had a little bit of a, an egg there to, to build from. And um, yeah, so we ended up, though, having to be in temporary spaces. We utilize a space in churches in Clifton, and we were on Short Vine in a building that University of Cincinnati owned. So for, you know, over five years. And so how tough has it been to find this new location? Well, it took us over five years, so that, that tells you a little bit. I mean, we looked really at, I probably visited easily 30 different locations, um, you know, some places that already existed. We obviously explored vacant lots, which is what we ended up going with, um, you know, and building from scratch. And, uh, you know, so it, it was it was not an easy road. Um, we had some stops and starts with some different uh, ideas and opportunities that didn't pan out. And so... Uh, But in the end, we were able to, I think, get, you know, really an incredible opportunity to build a purpose built, really the first purpose built community arts center in the city of Cincinnati. So it's it's really ended up being a blessing. And if I'm if I'm understanding correctly, you originally thought you might open last summer. Talk about some of the factors that that factored into the delay of the Yeah, well, I mean, when we finally got going with the project, the project has gone pretty smoothly. (laughs) It was just, um, you know, I mean, obviously COVID happened. So Mm -hmm. um, we had to raise 
about ten and a half million dollars. Um, now we did have about one and a half or so that we started from, but we really started finally kind of um, fundraising publicly, basically a month or two into the pandemic. So you know, some of that was fundraising, um, some of it was product delays, as you've heard probably everybody and their brother talk about, right? Steel was the big thing for us, you know, just a long lead time of getting some of those initial supplies that we needed in. So, um, but when we got started finally with construction in December of 2022, it took about 14 months, which was kind of what we expected. Okay. Erin, I know the inaugural exhibit in the new space will be Heritage. Uh, Tell us about your work and what we'll be seeing on that opening night. I want to briefly go back to the history of the CCAC. Sure. At its current location. It's just so insane how things come full circle. In 2009, when I was at in the DAT program, the MFA program, we decided to have our exhibit off campus in an old abandoned schoolhouse <laughs> that we had to clean out. And it ended up being the location where CCAC currently is. The space that I ended up having my thesis exhibit in was what was the library formerly. Hmm. Um, I wanted that big space and I used it. And I used it well, which was insane because I was also eight, nine months pregnant oh my at the time. I was, <laughs> I was pregnant my entire last year of grad school, which was insane. We'll have to talk about that much later. <laughs> and so fast forward, that's when Heritage started for me. It was about 2008 one day. Um, had a kind of a revelation. And I, it's been one of those things where I've u- done it, put it down, done it, put it down, just at different stages of my life. Um, and so to see Heritage manifest from something that people weren't really too excited about uh, to me finally finding the courage to pick it back up again post-divorce 2018 to just watching it continuously grow. I had an artist grant to exhibit Heritage in Dayton last year through Culture Works. And, um, and you know, I just decided to keep just like building and building and building on it. This is this feels very, uh, very much in line with the stars, um, this exhibit happening at the new CCAC, considering where we came from. You know, when they talk about them being in the old schoolhouse, I can definitely understand what she's talking about. We cleaned out that schoolhouse Mm -hmm. to have the very first event in that schoolhouse. And, to, and I'm even really excited for the Clifton Cultural Arts Center and everything that they've had to deal with pre and post pandemic. Having heritage there as the inaugural exhibit, I think is a game changer because as a black woman artist, um, you know, when I was at UC in the MFA program, I was not just the youngest in the program, but I was only one of two black people at the time in the program. So I didn't really feel a strong sense of support, but now um, the support is, you know, like the equivalent of me standing on someone's shoulders. Mm. And um, tell us about the art. What what is it? What will people see when they see your artwork? People will see aesthetics, beauty on the surface, um, but those aesthetic works will be supported by a more in depth statement for some for most of the pieces. I mean, each one will have at least a little blur, but some will go in depth. You know, I, I wanted to have a, a display style. Um, where it felt more like a museum than a gallery. You know, in museums, there's like a long blurb that details the process. And so some of it will be, you know, paintings and drawings. There will be a retrospect. um, And, you know, when people are walking in so they can see the initial works where I started as a graduate student, some of them are kind of beat up. um, But I'm just happy to have them, you know, have a retrospect. Um, 
And then in, in those pieces, they'll see, you know, extremely in-depth colored pencil, graphite, multimedia, oil paint, drawings, you know, d- detailing much of the orthodox history of hair in Africa and, you know, just black cultures around the world and kind of putting some some depth to what people see on the surface. On the surface is beautiful. On the surface is lovely. It's intricate, you know, but it goes deeper than that. And a lot of the practices that go on in hair salons and barbershops, those started with our ancestors. Those were things that were community. And often people joke around and say, I'm going to see my therapist when they're really talking about they're going to get their hair done. Mm -hmm. And many barbers and hairstylists now are actually getting certified for, you know, that line of work because they realize that people really do open up to them a lot. When I had a license and I was doing hair, people opened up to me about everything and I missed it, you know, when I had to leave it alone, but I had to focus back on the work. So some of the work will be, you know, dealing with adornment where that ties somewhat into hair where you're adorning the body and the more adornment typically represents a person's status, you know, the more intricate the hairstyle is that represents that person's status. If a chief in a tribe had 10 wives, you knew who his favorite was because her hairstyle stood out the largest of all of them. Mm. That is so interesting and intriguing, I think, to more than just black people. Yeah. Well, and hair has such a rich history, hair art even. Um, Talk to us a little bit more about that past and, and in particular its importance to black women. Ah. It's important to black people, (laughs) you know, and, uh, you know, we have things now that are finally starting to protect our heritage. You know, I spell heritage with the word hair in it, but our literal heritage, there has to be laws to protect our heritage. The Crown Act, which is something that I use my work to kind of talk about, you know, Nowadays at every show, I talk about, you know, hey, you guys, the Crown Act, we need to get that thing passed so people can finally go to work, go to school, go down the street and not be discriminated against simply because their hair grows the way it grows, Um, simply because we're holding on to our heritage. You know, Um, I, I just posted something the other day about how we're really not truly free because this young boy in Texas can't even, you know, do the things that he needs to do as far as his education is concerned. They're too busy looking at his coils instead of his character. And it is just absolutely astonishing. Um, But as far as past, you know, there's a lot of deeply rooted history in hair and community, and specifically in the black culture, it's different because our texture is so different. Our skin is different. Our texture is different. The tribes are the same, but different. They have unique practices. You can identify tribes by hairstyles and adornment. You know, um, children have adolescent hairstyles, but then they go through rites of passage and their hair changes according to the tradition set forth by that tribe. And then once they move past adolescence and maybe the man is going to be a warrior, you know, and in tribes like the... Uh, Maasai tribe, which is probably my favorite. It's a total shift in European culture when people find out that the men grow their hair long and the women shave their hair. Mm. And the men, even though they're these extremely militant, masculine, athletic warriors, they style each other's hair in preparation for ceremonies. They style each other's hair because it it is part of their tradition that, you know, um, when, when a 
when a boy is preparing to go into manhood, that man that's above him is styling his hair. Mm. The women shave their hair, but they adorn their bodies. And the women are more attractive, not because of their hair, but because of maybe their their adornment. The more colorful, the larger it is, that that's representing that woman's status. And so you'll see that in some of my pieces. You'll see some pieces give a friendly nod, uh, you know, a historical nod to the Maasai. You'll see some pieces that combine, um, in, excuse me, uh, you know, older Orthodox hairstyles, older tribal hairstyles. And you might see that applied to a person in our time. Hmm. So you might see hair that's in black and white to represent that historical aspect applied directly to a person that's in full color to symbolize them being in the modern time and the marriage between our ancestors and our current generations in in accepting it and embracing it and no longer being embarrassed by it because the black community in many ways has been so brainwashed to hate each other because that's the way you defeat a group of people is you just teach them how to hate each other and teach them how to hate themselves. But if we all understand this history then things will make more sense and we can begin to address those traumas that have been just pouring down through generations, you know, um, post-slavery. Hmm. Black people, you know, were depressed for many reasons. But one of those things that is not talked about is how the trauma of slavery forced a lot of people's hair health to suffer, hmm. which was very depressing for people like, you know, Madam C.J. Walker, um, who, by the way, was not the first black woman millionaire and you know there was actually one before her whose name slips me um but she had a whole hair school and everything they don't talk about her enough mm-hmm. um but a gentleman did a piece about her and put it in the cincinnati art museum at, recently at the black and brown faces exhibit so we even he and i dialogued about it a lot yeah. um but even with madam cj walker post-slavery her hair had fallen out she was depressed and then, as she know, there was this whole story that ensued where eventually she was able to get it back in health and able to employ other women. And they did. There's a whole history that people need to understand and tap into in order to first appreciate themselves and then to heal the trauma. Yeah. You know, Leslie, you must be so excited to be able to shine light on this great work of Aaron's and. I understand, you know, this space for your new center is designed from the ground up. Um, How does it differ from the original location, the old schoolhouse, in terms of its size and just its function? Oh, that's a great question. Um, So not much different in function. In fact, when we did a lot of community engagement and we did charrettes with our architects, one of the things that we heard was, we loved everything in the old building, so keep it all, <laughs> So, which was tricky because, I mean, the old school building was about 50,000 square feet, and our new home is about 18,000 internally with an occupiable rooftop, which is great. Um, so, but yeah, we have we have classes, classrooms that will function, you know, very multidisciplinarily. Um, we have room for dance and music instruction and visual arts instruction. We also have a theater, seats about 180 folks. Um, and then, of course, we have our two gallery spaces, one of which is called the Elizabeth nurse gallery which will feature predominantly women identifying artists including having a biannual new woman juried exhibition which out of that will come an artist in residence and that's how Aaron ended up being our first artist in residence out of our new woman juried show and thus um, will be our first exhibition in the new space and so we're very excited. 
Well, and talk about that focus on women artists. That seems like such an important focus for the center. It absolutely is. Yeah. I mean, part of that was born out of the fact that, I mean, we're we're sort of a, a very women-centric organization as it is. And we also had a donor who was really passionate about naming the gallery, but not naming it after themselves, naming it after pioneering female artist Elizabeth Nurse, who was from Cincinnati, um, you know, not recognized significantly in her time, but certainly now has become more well-known. And so that was part of it. And then, yeah, th- this focus on then featuring female artists. And we're we're so fortunate, I think, as a community art center and in Cincinnati in general, um, that we have so many up and coming wonderful artists like Aaron was 10 years ago at, <laughs> in an MFA program at DAP and then at Art Academy and all the different years. places. <laughs> Absolutely. Years yeah. 15 years 15 ago. Years ago. Um, yeah. And, you know, so our our luck is that we get to be the place that showcases this phenomenal talent and shines a light on, you know, on some of that. And so we have the really wonderful organizations in town like Art Museum and um, the Contemporary Art Center that can feature, you know, bring in international national artists and all that good stuff. But we have so much talent. So we're just rich with regional, diverse talent. And so we're, CCC is really excited to be able to to hone in on that. Yeah. Yeah. Erin, one of the things I read about Heritage, your exhibit, is that it responds to microaggressions, Mm -hmm. misinterpretations, diverse perspectives on hair. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit more about how your artwork does that. First of all, let me apologize because you guys are probably hearing the sound of my beads. <laughs> I wish people could see them because they are beautiful. <laughs> I have over 500 in my hair um, right now, and my hair goes down my back, so it's insane. But, uh, <laughs> you know, um, the microaggressions, let's look at what it really is, which is still aggression. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes people brush stuff aside. Oh, it's small. It's not a big deal. But if you walk away from a conversation and something is sitting in you and you're thinking, contemplating like, was that a shot they just threw at me? The microaggressions are just as damaging as publicly just going up to someone and pulling their hair and telling them you hate them because they're this or that or the other. I've literally dealt with microaggressions like, is that all your hair? Wow, I didn't know black people could grow their hair. That is so cool. Um, or just people coming and touching my hair. Now, I don't get offended when kids do it. My teacher hat goes on and then I say, oh, hey, baby, you can't do that, you know, because you never know what people might be dealing with internally. They might have PTSD. Um, You know, you you don't know what energy they have on them. Just be careful. Don't do that. But when I tell you I have had my hair assaulted on the land, sea and air, literally, I feel hands coming out of nowhere. Uh, Took my kids on a cruise last year and a guy touched my hair, Um, had to report it. Nothing happened about it because he was very aggressive with it. Um, He was drunk, I think. Mm. Um, But nothing ever came of it. And so uh, just I've been in restaurants and felt a hand and I'm like, I'm eating, you know. Uh, It's just insane. Microaggressions happen in many forms. For me, it's happened with my hair, with my name, with my body type. Oh, you don't look like an Aaron. Um, What the hell does that mean? (laughs) Like, what do I look like then? Um, You know, um, but I mean, you know, looks can be deceiving because you don't look like a bigot, but you know. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Like, seriously. Um, So the microaggressions, I think, are so dehumanizing. I would rather somebody blatantly come out and tell me than to do it in a sneaky way, you know, Um, because at least I know where you're coming from. But, you know, to smile in my face and, you know, hate on me at the same time 
is very psychologically damaging because, you know, where is this person coming from? Like, what is this? I'm confused. They seem nice, but this energy, you know. I want people to understand that there are certain microaggressions that really defeat a person's self-esteem. I'll give you a very specific and quick example. When I had heritage at the Dayton Society of Artists, shout out to them, Mm -hmm. shout out to Joe Bell, um, I had a hair hut up for the first time and I was so excited because I wanted to do a hair hut in grad school. I did one, but I was discouraged from showing it. People just weren't excited about it. And I let that discouragement get to me. I was 24 at the time. I was pregnant. I was just happy to have the work that I had done. And so, but that hair hut sat with me. I never gotten over it. I was like, I need to do this. I won't ever get over it unless I do it. I had the hair hut. It was up the first night and people were going under it, touching it, or at least the urge to touch it. And that night, I remember I didn't really feel anything until I went home and sat in silence and reflected. And I I felt assaulted again. I felt like it was my hair they were all reaching and touching. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to Joe Bell and I said, hey, can we amend the statement and put something up next to the hair hut? And she did, of course. She's awesome. And it was basically a statement of you wouldn't touch any of the other artwork in here. You know, It's, it's really the same exact thing. This is exactly what black people deal with all the time. There's posts about it all the time. There's all all the time so that was a major microaggression that i had to address well i have been talking with clifton cultural arts center executive director leslie mooney and ccac artist in residence aaron smith thank you both so much for your time today it's been a real pleasure thank you thanks lucy you've been listening to cincinnati edition on 91.7 wvxu our producer is selena reader associate producer is asia johnson technical director is marshall verbsky miss our programs live you can subscribe to cincinnati edition wherever you get your podcasts i'm lucy may thanks for listening